Hello and welcome to Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Seniors Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with the leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Evan Fisher, founder and general partner of Portal Ventures. Evan started his career at Goldman Sachs and Insight Partners before launching Portal. At Portal, Evan invests across the industry, globe, and fundraising stage as he applies his traditionally trained venture skill set to protocol investing. Evan is a pragmatist with a business model-oriented investment framework that has thus far resonated with founders and builders across the blockchain industry. Let's get into it. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Seniors Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Seniors Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Evan, welcome to the Senior Studio. How's it going? Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. We briefly bumped into each other in Paris at the Medici event at ECC. Curious to hear, how was your trip to Paris? Did you get some baguettes? Did you have some escargot? <laughs> how was your trip? Lots of charcuterie boards for a certain. Medici was was awesome. It was good to see you there. Thanks for, for putting that on, as always. Paris was a great conference. I've been saying for probably six to eight months at this point, that the discrepancy in the delta between public perception of crypto and what's happening on the ground is really at a cycle high, which is exciting. And how that manifested in Paris was I I found there were so many side events, so many side conferences, but they weren't, you know, shallow. They were deep. It was like, let's go deep on this topic. Let's go deep on this use case. That could be the modular summit. It could be fully homomorphic encryption with Zama. It could be Urbit with the largest Urbit meetup, I think, to ever happen. So all in, it's it's a really exciting time across crypto right now. And Paris was that. Yeah, that sentiment very much holds true in my experience. And how do you think we solve that? How do we share with those who aren't spending all their time in crypto what is actually being built and why it's so meaningful to us? It's it's a great question. There are two answers. One is to solve it by shipping products and putting it in their hands. It's the easiest way to speak to what's exciting here is push products out and show the real world use. And that's happening increasingly. It's happening across different categories. The The second though, and it's something I love doing, is translating these worlds. So we'll, we'll get into it, but I spent time on Wall Street at Goldman. I spent time at Insight. I love saying, how do you take what's happening in crypto and and really translate it back to traditional markets, traditional investors, traditional leaders? And so a lot of it is that game of translation. It's a perfect segue. So what is your background experience? What led you to crypto and ultimately founding Portal? Definitely. I grew up as a bit of a finance nerd. 
I would sit in the back of math class trading options on Apple. I'd get home in time from school to watch the CNBC closing bell. That led to me starting my career on Wall Street. I started my career at Goldman. I was covering industrials, so a very different side of the world. We worked on everything from complex RMT transactions to M&A to activist defense and IPOs. After that, I, I joined Insight Partners in early 2019. When I joined Insight, it was a much smaller firm. I saw them grow from um, really a strong growth equity firm to a world-class investment firm. And that was exciting. I invested across software, fintech, internet, and then drove the crypto efforts as well. My interest in crypto started in the 2010s. My One of my high school best friends actually brought me into it. I remember sitting on his couch a long time ago talking about the Ethereum ICO and what it was, the potential for it, the ability to build a financial system on top of it, etc. And over time, it grew on me and an insight when I realized what was happening here. I realized we, we weren't just creating a new vertical. We were creating a new asset class. Protocols are as profound of a change in business models as software was in the early 2000s. And when I was at Insight, I said, I, I want to do this full time. I thought, what's the best way to, to do that? And what I realized was because it's a profound business model shift, it's also going to create a new asset class. And historically, new asset classes create new types of investors. Um, there's a reason Blackstone isn't the world's best venture capital firm, for instance. And so then with that, I think that there are going to be new world-class investment firms built on top of the protocol economy. And that's because tokens have such unique characteristics to them in terms of the liquidity profile, how you underwrite the business model, stuff like that. So about a year and a half ago, I, I left Insight to start Portal Ventures. The partners were supportive. So the largest investment capital of Portal Fund One comes from partners of Insight. Um, we have a handful of other investors from you know Decacorn founders that we worked with at Insight to Wall Street executives, private equity execs, large venture fund managers. And the idea behind Portal is twofold. Number one, to build a firm that has the agility to invest at the risk reward at the stage that makes the most sense. And that agility is lost by a lot of firms as they get too big. And number two is really to be focused on the business model of crypto. I found a lot of the investors were technologists at the time of starting the firm. And the opportunity there was as technologists existed in the early internet, the OG internet investors, Mary Meeker, Bill Gurley, they came from Wall Street. They were internet native, but they came from Wall Street. And so that's what we do at Portal. We're, we're business-minded protocol investors. How has your classically trained investment experience informed your approach to protocol investing at Portal? It's interesting. A lot of it translates. And by that, I mean, our mandate is to find world-class founders solving hard problems in large markets with the potential for moats and pricing power, and then to do that at the risk-reward that makes sense. And you could say the same about any venture capital firm out there. The flavor's different. The skin's different, though. But it's really grounded in those fundamentals. And so where it actually helps is that I can say, what does a business need to look like to create a public markets-like outcome? I think a lot of early crypto success was built realistically on driving to a liquid token, and then it was retail supporting it. And that's not what the future of this industry is. The future of this industry is having institutional investors be excited to own, for the long term, liquid tokens. And they're excited to own liquid tokens because liquid tokens are the equity-like instrument 
or something similar to protocols, which are necessarily internet native businesses. And so you can say that and you can say, okay, when I'm underwriting a crypto asset, what's the reason a long only hedge fund will want to own this asset in five to 10 years versus Amazon versus industrial assets versus bonds versus cash? Where does it go in portfolio construction? And so that's, that's really how it manifests. Where does it differ? Where does your expertise in traditional venture investing deviate from how you approach protocol investing? The first is in how you actually underwrite a protocol. And that's to say, protocol investing is not software investing. The life cycle of a protocol is structurally different. And I think that's something the market gets wrong so often. People will say, oh, what's the price to sales ratio of a protocol? That's not the way to do it today. It's the way to do it in the future to look at, okay, what's the equivalency in terms of the profitability relative valuation? But today the approach is different. But I can draw an example, like biotech investing, for instance, if you're, or maybe a new drug. If you're investing in pharma, you don't underwrite those assets at the venture stage like you would a software asset. And the reason for that is because it's de-risked in different ways. You have the drug come up with a paper, then they test it, they have clinical trials, eventually it passes. And then if it passes, you know the demand's there. And the hockey stick, as a result, is quite steep. And so I think protocols are actually somewhat close to that. It's some blend between software investing and bio investing, which is to say, when you invest in something at the white paper stage, that's part of the de-risking. The idea and the solution is there. The hypothesis is there. Then it pushes the test net. It pushes to mainnet. It starts getting partners. It might not have revenue yet, but it's been de-risked. The technical risking, de-risking exists. And then once it actually starts to scale, as you see with volumes on GMX or Uniswap or with fees on something like Ethereum, the hockey sticks are very compressed. And so there, there's been some innovation that we've had to do there to say, okay, what the actual fair value of a venture asset that does not yet have cash flows in crypto? The first idea. The second idea is you can be a fundamentals-driven investor in crypto, but you also have to be aware of the game on the field at any point in time, which is to say crypto assets historically have traded irrationally high and irrationally low. And I can get into why I think that is. It's partially because of the cycles, partially because of the lack of clarity around how you value these assets. But you do also have to be cognizant of that, which requires an awareness of the capital markets. And so that's where I tap into like you know the old times looking at options on Apple and playing with liquid like with equities back in the day. And, and you have to really wear both a venture hat and a public markets hat. Because if you don't do both, if you don't understand the potential of the asset in addition to the market structure, you miss out on tail. And this industry is all about generating tail right now. I love that analogy to playing a game on the field because I've noticed at Seniors we talk to hedge funds all the time. So I'm intimately aware with the, these long bias strategies that I think will end up holding some of the tokens that you at Portal may be investing in. But I notice sometimes there's an overemphasis on traditional fundamental research and valuation. And as a result, miss out on some of the action that's taking place right here, right now. How do you make sure that you're playing both games simultaneously? It's, it's about innovating here. Like if we go back to early internet investing and early software investing, the answer definitively was not to say, 
how does a business services platform do something and how do we translate that one-to-one to software? Like the innovation was saying, wow, this is the power of subscription revenue. This is what can happen with a go-to-market motion. This is how you can start to stack cohorts. This is how you can think about an ARR waterfall, how you can think about the efficiency of a marketing budget. And in doing that, you can underwrite assets differently. So it's, it's really all about creating an equivalent innovation on how you underwrite an asset and how you think about the de-risking of it. And that's, that's the name of the game. I wanted to go back to your comment around hedge funds buying these assets in five to 10 years because they think they're, they hold value and there's merit to them. What do you think needs to change in the industry in order to attract that institutional capital that will either invest into crypto hedge funds or will own those digital assets themselves? Which for them, historically, all they're willing to hold is really BTC. If that, maybe ETH, but nothing really longer tail than that. So how do you get institutions comfortable either LPing into funds or owning those longer tail assets themselves? It's twofold. Number one, teaching liquid investors, i.e. hedge funds in this case, how to actually underwrite these assets. If that, for, for that, we can draw again to the internet. Like it wasn't typical for hedge funds to own internet assets 10 to 15 years ago. And then people started to get smart on the way in which you underwrite them and they got more comfortable and now they make up large percentages of portfolios. So that too needs to happen in crypto. People need to understand how to underwrite these assets. Specific to the liquids though, you then need people to say, wow, this is a real business, again, with moats, a large market pricing power. And it needs to make sense on a fundamental level. So we can maybe point to an example. Like, Why do I think people will own Ethereum? in liquid books over time. Well, Ethereum is a protocol, and that means it's effectively a software business that has no fixed costs. That's, to me, the innovation of a protocol, a software business with no fixed costs. What does Ethereum as a business sell? It sells access to block space. What is that? That's effectively access to a database. What's the cost of goods sold of Ethereum? Well, it's the cost of creating that database, i.e. the cost of consensus. The reason the switch from proof of work to proof of stake was so profound is because it changed the cost structure of Ethereum, the business. It made it more capital efficient. Then you can say, wow, Ethereum is burning run rate X billion dollars a year. It's actually the equivalent to EBITDA. It's the equivalent to EBITDA because instead of doing an automatic share buyback, they could actually have it accumulate in some treasury or dividend it out to the token holders, i.e. shareholders. And you start to look at that you say, okay, what am I willing to pay for a business like that? It, it, it starts to look attractive in public markets portfolios, especially when you then say the profitability it's doing and how early we are in the adoption curve. So we'll see that happen to other protocols. There are certain protocols I think resemble Ethereum's hockey stick over the next one to two cycles, and we'll see equivalent growth. And then there are other protocols which are actually application layer potentially, which will similarly have the benefit of very limited fixed costs and the ability to hyperscale. I really like your your use of ETH as an example there. Layer ones, the token utility is pretty clear. I'm curious how you think about 
applications and those tokens holding value without being deemed securities. So we've obviously seen enforcement action against Binance and Coinbase labeling many of the assets on their platforms like Solana and Filecoin and Matic and Chili's as securities. Outside of layer one blockchains, because I think that's that's kind of obvious, how do you think about how these tokens can hold value and token holders would actually have a claim to something rather than just hand-wavy governance rights? I'll start by saying I, I can't comment on specifically what is or is not a security. My perspective there is we need regulation. Regulation exists to protect people that are investing in assets and to create clear guidelines for innovation in industries. It's clear to me that we need regulation. How that actually unfolds is something that I think requires innovation, what that looks like, time will tell. In terms of why an application would need a token, it's really dependent on the application itself. Not all applications need tokens, but if an application is properly a protocol, it does need a token because, again, protocols have no fixed costs. And so how can you possibly have an equity structure accruing value to a Delaware C-Corp if you are a business with no fixed costs? And so there you could look at, like, one example could be Lido, for instance. Lido is a protocol. It's a protocol that allows, ultimately, people to stake Ethereum. And then it creates a token representing that stake in Ethereum, which resembles a loan. For Lido to accrue value, it necessarily requires a token. Otherwise, it would have a centralized body. So, so that's kind of how I think about it. Protocols necessarily require tokens. Not all applications are protocols. Got it. Well, it's clear you bring a true financial lens to evaluating these protocols and thinking not not just about their technical merit, but their ability to accrue real value. How has this manifested in your investment framework at Portal, are you a generalist, a globalist? Are there any areas of focus? Where do you feel like you have edge and you spend your time? I I have edge on the business model. It's thinking again about what has the potential to create the equivalence of a public market story. And I looked to Insight, where I came from. At Insight, we would invest early stage. We'd invest in growth rounds. We'd invest in pre-IPO rounds. And we'd invest across categories too. So we'd invest in HR software, in supply chain software, in payments. And the reason we could do that was, again, because we were experts in the business model. We certainly were dangerous in every category. We were prepared minds. We had theses on where we thought it was going. But we were experts in the business model. And I think that's actually a huge value add to founders. Founders see at most one to two, three businesses over their entire lifetime. They spend 24-7 thinking about the category they're playing in. So they, they absolutely should be world-class in the category they're playing in. But there's no way they can actually be as strong as an investor on the business model itself. So examples of that could be how do you compare and contrast go-to-markets across different portfolio companies? How do you think about mechanisms for capturing value? How do you think about hiring how do you think about supporting a founder when they're going through a big strategic decision? How do you think about fundraising help? That's what we focus on because it's necessarily complementary to founders. I also think it's missing 
at large from this industry. I remember when I was raising the fund, people would tell me, Evan, you need to be focused on NFTs or focused exclusively on DeFi. And I don't think that's right from a portfolio construction perspective. I don't think that's right in that you actually create lots of connections by being across different areas, i.e. I think DeFi and gaming have a lot they can learn from each other. And I also don't think it's 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 right in terms of like how you you spend your time every day. Like you you need to be across categories to catch all the innovation. So we're generalists, we're focused on the business model. Couple of things I want to drill in on there. The first is what are the business models that you've studied in crypto that you think are emblematic of where this space can go? Is it marketplace? Like there's all these different types of business models. What are the ones you're most excited about where crypto ingenuity and innovation is additive to this business model and creates a new business model? An example of a business model could be a layer one blockchain, which effectively sells a product and then charges on that product on a usage basis. So that's a usage-based business model. We haven't really seen properly recurring revenue on-chain business models. The most interesting ones have been either usage-based, which again resembles like payments almost, uh, or it's been something that's a marketplace. So, you know, Filecoin historically could be this. Now it's actually layer one or maybe Render is this, for instance. It's a crypto-native marketplace. So those are some of the business models we've we've seen. We're, we're constantly sharpening our pencil internally and saying, wow, this business, this protocol really popped off. It, it had huge usage and it actually captured that with fees and revenue on chain. How would we define the business model? How would we bucket it? So we, we have a few that we categorize it into right now. It's realistically the early innings, though. It's the equivalent of the early 2000s where you see Salesforce doing recurring revenue, but on-prem still exists and it's being baked out. But the way that we we see this playing out is our venture partner, Ori, he recently started something called the Mechanism Design Institute. And this is a library to collect economic governance, other types of mechanisms that have been attempted throughout crypto. And I think these mechanisms help inform the business models over time. So L1s use a mechanism. Ethereum, or rather Maker, uses a buy and burn mechanism, and that allows it to create different types of business models. So these two worlds will start to be connected, but again, it's it's really early days, and so all we can do is take notes and form hypotheses. Got it. Very interesting. So you cover a number of different verticals. You think they contribute to your overall knowledge of the space, and you can borrow insights from one category and apply them to analysis protocol in another category. What are some of the categories you're most excited about right now? What are some emerging verticals that people aren't paying enough attention to? Yeah, despite being generalists and focused on the business model, we certainly go deep. And an example of a category we went deep on recently was fully homomorphic encryption. That's one that I learned about by going to a cryptographer summit in Tokyo in March or April of this year. I saw the lineup, the speakers. I said, wow, this is a really interesting group of people. And I realized, okay, no other VC wants to jump on an 18-hour flight for a four-day conference. I said, that's the definition of alpha. Do things people are unwilling to do to collect information others are not receiving. So I went. I was one of two venture 
capitalists in the room. It was proper cryptographers. And I asked them, what, what's the idea? What's the technology you're most excited about right now? And the majority said fully homomorphic encryption, to which I said, I've never heard of this. I work in crypto, but I've never heard of this cryptography technique. And so I went down the rabbit hole. I, I dug in, I figured out who are the most interesting players in the space? Why does it matter? And, and what I realized was, wow, everyone's been so interested in ZK and zero knowledge and MPC in various encryption standards and has overlooked FHE. But I think FHE has the potential to be an order of magnitude larger than something like ZK. And the reason for that is, is you can ask the question, what is it? So ZK is a scaling solution, it's not technically a privacy solution. What it does is it lets you ask a database a question and get back a yes or no answer without revealing the data. And that can be useful. But what FHE does is takes it one step further. It says, what if we could ask a database to run a calculation and not actually know what the data is, but know that the calculation and the data are true. And that's needed for things like open internet applications. If we're going to build this open internet, there's going to be a lot of data that's running through. Email, for instance, is not just asking a question. Email is running calculations. So it powers things like that. And we've been going deep into the category. I think that it manifests in the form of protocols and then also a lot of other applications that can be built once this core primitive exists. Interesting. How does that compare to MPC? Like, I feel like FHE, ZK, MPC, they're all kind of noodling around this same concept. What is, like, I guess, comparing FHE to MPC? It's, it's a great question. I have a long answer to this. The concise answer is coming out in a blog post that we're pushing in the next month or two. And so I'll, I'll reserve the, the brief answer for that one to, to spare everyone. Okay, great. Well, well, we'll touch on it there. Another topic that you guys are pounding the table on that I haven't seen too many other funds discussing is Urbit. What is Urbit? Why is it important? And how have you been going down the rabbit hole? Urbit is potentially the highest conviction contrarian investment that I've ever made. Urbit at a high level can be explained for the following. Blockchains are in a platform that create permissionless and composable value. Ethereum creates programmable value. That value can be sent. Now, Blockchains are important to create this because they solve the double spend problem. They make it so you can't say you're sending $1 to two people and lie to the global network. They solve double spend through global consensus. Now, if we look at crypto as a whole, crypto is trying to create both a new financial system and a new internet. Both of them we want to be open, permissionless, composable. Now, the open internet does not have a double spend problem. If we're at a group chat with five people it doesn't matter if everyone in the world agrees on what we're saying to each other. It also doesn't matter if we lie and say that we sent the same message twice. It doesn't impact the experience. And so in many ways, using global consensus for internet applications that require local consensus is the equivalent of driving an armored vehicle for your family to go to soccer practice. It's using a security mechanism, which is very expensive and not needed, frankly. So enter Urbit. If blockchains are a protocol to create global consensus for permissionless composable value, Urbit is a protocol, not a blockchain, but a protocol to create local consensus for 
permissionless composable data and applications, internet applications specifically. So I first learned about Urbit in 2020, and frankly, it took me two years to get smart on it. I learned about it through two developer friends of mine and kept asking questions over the two years and eventually clicked. And it clicked, I would say about eight to 12 months ago, we made the investment earlier this year. And since then, we've been focused on really just making it a simpler narrative because it's not something that should require two years of dedicated work to get smart on. But I guess that the last thing before pausing on this front is when I look at Urbit, it today is the equivalent to me as Ethereum in 2016. The potential is as large as Ethereum in 2016. The traction is about equivalent, if not higher. Um, and it's also seeing growth in the developers and in the users as Ethereum did in 2016. It's going through what I call its MetaMask moment. A year ago, as in 2015 Ethereum, you had to command line into it to use it. It was incredibly challenging to use. You had to be technical. Then MetaMask came along and you could ultimately access Ethereum with ETH. For Urbit, a year ago, you had to command line it. You had to be technical to host your personal server on Urbit, i.e. to use your computer, which is the equivalent of your wallet on a blockchain. Now you can get on the network in sub five minutes through platforms like Holium, for instance. And that's that's really inflecting the network. How did you invest? Is it a token? It, you said it's not a blockchain, it's a protocol. So is it on another L1? I Some of the technicalities are lost on me. If we double click on what you invest in on Urbit, you invest in address space. So Urbit is building three things. It's building an operating system. Think of that as the equivalent of iOS, but open. It's building address space. Think of that the equivalent as IP addresses on the internet. And then it's building a networking protocol for my four addresses to talk to one another, similar to TCP. Now, within Urbit, the address space, every address is a personal server. And those personal servers can talk to one another using the Urbit protocols. Now, let's run with an analogy, and this will help show what it is that you invest in. Let's say that Urbit is a city. Now, let's say that city has scarce land in it. Let's say to enter that city, you need to be a resident. You buy your residence. Then if you want to be a business in that city, you need to buy a building, buy or rent a building. And then if you want to ultimately manage that city, i.e. run a district, you would need to own a neighborhood all of a sudden. And so Urbit has tiered address space, and you buy that address space. And so what you buy to invest is you buy a neighborhood which contains buildings and contains residence tickets. And those are the assets that accrue value over time. There's more that will come on that front in terms of new mechanisms that are being rolled out over the next year or so to help simplify some of the mechanics from an investor perspective. But what you effectively buy is ownership of the equivalent of a digital city, digital real estate, on top of which this digital economy is built. What do you think needs to, what is being built in the Urbit ecosystem now that could attract the attention of first crypto native folks, but then potential retail investors as they start to understand what's being built. What is the first there, application that, for me, once this podcast is done, I'm going to go on to XYZ website and start doing something that is additive to my life? There, there are about 100 applications on Urbit today, created by a little over 100 developers, which makes it a top 15 network 
in crypto by dev count. Those applications range from groups on which you can chat to peer-to-peer -peer video messaging to something called radio, where you can hang out and listen to music with friends, to then new applications that are being built by some portfolio companies, for instance, that connect urban computers to blockchains. And so you could, for instance, play games that are financialized. The game exists on your urban computer and it's trustlessly tied to the blockchain such that you can create interesting strings of bets that exist between maybe a complicated chessboard, for instance. So there, there's a lot happening on top of Urbit. I expect a lot more to happen as well, because now there, there are layer one blockchains that are going to come out and natively support Urbit. So Urbit will have tie-ins to Ethereum. It'll have tie-ins to Urbit native blockchains. It has a tie-in and a partnership with Near and the blockchain operating system and, and more to come across a couple of other ecosystems, which I can't talk about yet. So those integrations, again, unlock new applications and, and new user experiences. But you can get on the network today and do meaningfully more than you can across a number of L1s in crypto. If you had a task, a senior studio audience with one piece of homework to learn about Urbe, what would it be? It would be to register for Holium or Tlon Landscape, which we can share the links on later. You can get on the network and under five to 10 minutes. After that, I can share a list of a few groups that are worth joining and interesting to join, some applications that are interesting to join, and just play around with the network. I think if you go on those, a lot of people are going to have an experience equivalent to when they first used MetaMask and made their first DeFi transaction. You, I remember for me, at least, I, I did that. I looked at the composability. I looked at what was possible. I said, wow, I don't know how this is not the future of our financial system, the future of this internet financial system. Something equivalent happens for me when I go on on Urbit, and I think will happen for a lot of people where you say, wow, this is clearly where we're going. It's early. It's Ethereum in 2016 early, but it's it's where we're going. All right. Well, I'm assigning the homework now, and I'll have the links referenced in the show notes, so everyone check it out and, and let me know your thoughts. Transitioning out of Herbit, thank you for the alpha. I appreciate it. And glad you went also to that conference in Tokyo and hit us with the fully homomorphic encryption alpha. Transitioning to DeFi, you come from the world of traditional finance, Goldman and Insight. Yesterday, well, we're recording this on July 31st. So yesterday, Curves, Curve got hacked. I know there's some nuance as to exactly how it got hacked. And that it wasn't necessarily the curve protocol, but rather some, I guess, like some coding language that it pulls from where there was some gap. What is, you know, DeFi is still getting hacked. There's not much TVL growth. There's Uniswap v4. There's a number of things going on, but there hasn't been that zero. There, there was that zero to one moment. And now we're looking for the one to two moment. What is that one to two moment? Is it institutionalization of DeFi and getting institutions to participate on chain? Is it on-chain derivatives? Is it no oracles like an Ajna? What's next? What are you excited by? I think there's a lot of talk about bringing institutions to DeFi, which we'll, we'll just broaden and call, let's use the internet financial system is, is what I'd prefer just because it doesn't necessarily need to be decentralized. It should be on chain. It doesn't necessarily need to be decentralized. But that will come. 
That's actually not what I'm most excited about. Like real world assets, I think are interesting, but not the most interesting. The most interesting are really internet native assets. And so I think two things are happening and will happen. Number one is internet native assets are increasing in their utility. This will happen through the use of things like NFTs being used for IP rights and royalties, but also internet commodities. So I think LSTs, for instance, are internet commodities. They're assets that are used to produce internet goods, i.e. consensus across blockchains. And there will be new markets built around these internet commodities as the utility increases. So an example could be block space derivatives, for instance, saying, okay, if gas is a huge input cost across blockchains, shouldn't we have a commodities market around that? It's used to create a good. Or you could look to something like restaking. You could say, wow, if we're going to actually build new chains with restaking, if Eigenlayer works, shouldn't there be marketplaces to actually trade and underwrite different restaked assets? So someone like Ion Protocol, we led the precedent, is doing that, for instance. There's lots of nuance around it. So internet commodities and internet assets will unlock a lot of TVL over the next five to 10 years. The other thing, though, is there will be net new primitives. People look at this ecosystem and say, wow, is there going to be anything new? Now, if we look to traditional financial markets, the answer is definitively yes. Like credit default swaps, for instance, were not invented until 1994, and it's a $4 trillion market today. So you look at something like that and you say, "How there's so much innovation always happening in traditional financial markets. Of course, there's going to be innovation across this financial system now. And so we've been really active across the category. We invested in Iron, Ion Protocol, which I mentioned. We led a pre-seed into Blueprint Finance, which is building the Concrete Protocol. It's a capital-efficient insurance protocol in Q4 of last year. We've made a handful of, of others. It's, it's a category we think has really hit a, a trough, actually. I think a lot of people were exhausted by the number of forks that happened over the late bull cycle, where there actually wasn't anything new. They said, we're not looking at the category anymore. And, and I've realized, wow, now is actually a great time because prices are attractive. Founders are building proper innovation. And frankly, it's necessary to crypto. The core innovation in crypto with blockchains, again, is programmable value. I don't know how we use that innovation without internet native financial markets. So we're excited. Interesting the comment about developing new commodity markets like why is there no futures market for gas on ETH, right? That seems like a natural next step and is an obvious innovation that needs to be done. Maybe click into to ION protocol and just like walk us through how that deal was sourced. What What's the key innovation? And then what gave you the conviction that this was going to be a protocol worth owning for the next 10 years? Yeah, Ion's a good one. It touches on a lot of things that we do uniquely, I think. Ion, we we met the founder, Chanda, through the Penn blockchain ecosystem. Katrina recently graduated from Penn with an MBA and helps drive a lot of work across Penn blockchain. Helps run the accelerator, plan the Penn blockchain conference, etc. So we have deep relationships with a number of universities. We find there's great talent there. So we got to know Chanda through that. And we got to know him over a number of months. So we could spend real time understanding how does he think, what's he excited about. When he said he was raising, you know, we spent about a month digging in. The first call, we always come prepared minds. So again, like we go deep in categories. We're focused on where we spend time. Um, 
And so you can ask really sophisticated questions and get under the hood pretty quickly, understand like how do they actually want to under risk? Why does a specific marketplace need to exist for restaked assets? What does the go-to-market look like? What do the partnerships look like? The value capture, et cetera. So we spent about a month with him and he was raising a pre-seed round. So he was raising about a million and a half at the time. And Portal is built to be agile. So we said, we'd love to come in. We'd love to lead or co-lead. And we can do that with a check size that really makes sense. And so you, you can say, we can actually roll up our sleeps. We can go to bat. A lot of big funds now are finding they can't write less than 3 million bucks, less than 5 million bucks. And it's because if you have a few hundred million dollars to deploy, you know, you need to manage bandwidth. Like the math needs to work such that an asset and a, a company can return the fund for you to actually spend time on them. So we put down the first term sheet and the round immediately became competitive. It immediately became 4X oversubscribed over two to three weeks. And that was really indicative of the market today. A lot of people aren't doing work. A lot of people are looking around saying, what are my peers doing? Where does Signal exist? And then how do I hop on as fast as possible? So not only were we there early, not only did we spend real time with the founder, former own views, it pays to have conviction because then we secured the check that we wanted, ultimately priced the round, and we're able to get into what turned into a very competitive process. The reason that we're excited about it is because if restaked assets really followed through on their potential, i.e. the eigenlayer vision, these restaked assets are going to be used to create new products that produce billions and billions of value. These new products are, again, databases that depend on the consensus of which uses these assets. And there are lots of nuances around why there need to be specific financial marketplaces for this. An example could be every restaked asset has different slashing protocols. And with those slashing protocols, the risk of the asset is different. And so while the price of like STETH on Lido should realistically be about the same price as ETH staked via CBETH, in the future as they're restaked, it shouldn't trade one-to-one. -one. There should be different values there. And someone needs to create a marketplace for that to happen. So we think it can be a core primitive to this financial system and, and ultimately power massive volumes of, of, of loans and transactions over the restaked economy. So a couple of the, the protocols that you've referenced on this call, they're pretty technical. I think they would definitely have a crypto native customer base, consumer base first. Is there anything you've seen on the more consumer mass adoption side of things where you're starting to generate conviction in? Because at the end of the day, crypto has a TAM problem. And in order for the space to grow, in order for there to be exits and token numbers go up, there needs to be fresh dollars in the space. And that could be people investing into BTC and ETH. And then once those pump, trying to look for something longer tail, or hopefully there's retail and institutional participation on like a real application or use case that impacts their day-to-day -day life. Is there anything that you've seen on that second bucket that you're excited by from like a broader category perspective and then maybe on a more specific project or deal perspective? There certainly have been things we're excited to see there. We don't invest in consumer businesses or consumer protocols, though. And the reason for that, again, is we're, we're focused on being business model experts. And that's structurally different. I think a lot of protocols have a protocol to developer to consumer slash user motion that's their go-to-market that's a business model that we really understand because come from the software world from the fintech world the payments world etc 
it's just not our, our right to win on the consumer front. Now, in terms of things that we have seen, though, that are exciting, I actually do think a lot that we're seeing across NFTs is exciting. You're seeing major brands adopt things like this. You're seeing games use them in interesting ways. You're seeing them bootstrap IP networks and IP value all of a sudden. I think we're going to see interesting things across gaming. We're going to see interesting social media experiences. Something like Urbit will probably play a very large part in doing that. So it's happening, and I agree it needs to happen. It's just not our area of focus. It's the first idea. There's another idea I'd layer in here, though, which is there's a lot of talk when talking when thinking about, okay, what's the consumer use case? People say, wow, this is too crypto-native for me. Wow, this is too unfamiliar. And let's go back to the internet again. Like, could you imagine if we built email focused on folks that were 35 to 55 years old at the time? It, it, it wouldn't make sense. Like, you build the internet for future generations. That's the TAM. That's the terminal value. And so when I look at crypto applications, there actually have been some very interesting consumer applications. They're just honestly somewhat hard to use on the consumer side, unless you are properly crypto native, unless you are, you know, sub 25 and you've started to grow up understanding what is this world? What does it mean to be on chain as you knew what it was to be online for our generation? And that's the TAM here. So the way I get close to consumer applications is frankly spending a lot of time with those university networks again. We have an intern from Penn this summer, and I learn a lot about how younger generations are thinking about using these applications. What's fun? What's enjoyable? What's the purpose? Do they value something like trustlessness, for instance? The, the customer demographic is a lot, is quite different from what people, I think it, what people think it will be. What what are some key takeaways on that younger demo that's coming to the workforce, going to start having some money? What what are some key, maybe non-consensus takeaways from that age group? One is obviously valuing digital experiences. Digital experiences are going to come again with digital assets. Like there's this whole world that exists online in the internet economy. The internet has a $3 trillion economy. So many of the capital assets in that economy don't like are not used. They're, they're, it's inefficient. And so number one is we're going to see people increasingly care about digital assets in the form of things that create digital experiences. And that is one of the reasons, again, I'm so excited about this internet financial system. Like that is going to result in huge markets. Another, which I think is surprising, is they understand the importance of things like self-custody or of things like having a proper like trustless or sovereign experience. I look back to Urbit, for instance, and a lot of the younger people on Urbit actually really value having their own personal server, having personal compute, knowing it's something that they can trust. And that's going to become increasingly important, actually. So let's let's think about like weird futures we can have. Maybe it's futures of AI girlfriends or of like super personalized AI. Maybe it's futures that involve interesting like bio devices, interesting biometric devices. That's a future where you're increasingly pushing sensitive data to technology. In that future, you probably start to actually really care about trust and privacy. And these younger generations have seen the wrong side of this, and and they're coming in with clean eyes. They're saying, why would I ever give this away? So the, the demographic is actually quite interesting to study and important to study if you are going to invest in consumer applications here. AI girlfriends, that's that's the future that crypto enables, and I'm excited to, to, to hear of new relationships forming in the crypto cupid. 
last question, then we'll get into spicy takes on the, the AI topic. A lot of noise out there. AI winter is now taking the, the reins over crypto winter. Is there anything in that space that you're excited by beyond just pretty UI on top of LLMs? Like what at the intersection of crypto and AI are you most excited about? I've made no direct investments playing to this theme. There are investments I've made, which certainly I think will be beneficiaries of this theme. But, you know, number one, you always have to ask the question, what's my right to win? Number two, you have to ask the question of what's actually changed here. I think AI has continued on an exponential curve. It's hard for me to argue that the curve has changed. I think it's simply an exponential curve and people forget what that feels like. So if I zoom out now and I say, why was there this AI hype cycle? Why are there crypto hype cycles? Maybe there's a semiconductor, like superconductor hype cycle right now. I don't know what it is, but we're seeing hype cycle after hype cycle. And I think the reason for that is because everyone still expects linear growth in technology. And that's not happening anymore. It's all exponential. And so if you look away for a year, two years, et cetera, you, you come back and you're surprised by the progress that has happened. And that's what happened with AI. We, we had an AI wave before. And then it disappeared. We forgot about it. Then things came out. We said, wow, this is incredible. We have crypto waves. People look at it. They forget about it. They come back and say, wow, we've made real progress. And then as that starts to happen, they realize they're underallocated. They realize that they're allocating, assuming that either it falls off or it follows this linear trajectory. And so to me, it's, it's just another symptom of like the accelerating growth that we're seeing in this exponential age. The short answer, though, is no, I've, I've not invested into it. But I'm excited for what's coming. Have you incorporated any AI into your workflow? We have an AI-driven note taker for for our video calls, and I occasionally ask ChatGPT questions. I've seen many nice. interesting implementations, but to, to be honest, I can only be an early adopter on so many things. And so I'd, I'd rather stick in my lane in crypto and my friends will tell me what's exciting to use in AI after the, the, the hype wears off and I'll take their lessons of 12 to 24 months of experimentation and implement it into my life then. Yeah, it very much feels like AI is in its demo phase where you're seeing this concept car, you tinker with it, and then you don't really use it. But We'll see 12 to 24 months. I hope that there's tools in place that I would feel comfortable incorporating and feel like I get value from every day. The other thing I would add on the AI front is people say, well, people are really lining up. Like there are lines out the door to use AI applications. We're excited there. And they'll contrast that to crypto. And yes, like there is, there needs to be increased usage of these crypto products. One thing that falls in the camp of where should you invest and where should you allocate is people forget that they're structurally different assets still. And so the use case is important, but the power of crypto as an asset is also really important to remember, which is to say, this is an asset class that sees liquidity in three to six years. It sees liquidity because it can go liquid fairly quickly. It can go fair liquid fairly quickly because ultimately it's lower barriers to entry. It's using decentralized systems to leverage a lot of the infrastructure that would previously have to be built in-house. And then it's also able to hyperscale faster than most businesses. So what we're seeing here is 
a lot of crypto assets are going to go liquid and start generating returns for funds at a very fast pace. And a lot of the hype that AI is seeing, I don't think we're going to see exits for a lot of these. So, you know, not all crypto assets are going to make money by any stretch of the imagination, but the ones that do are going to do it pretty quickly and are will be quite profound. Totally agree. On to the jalapeno infused section of today's podcast. What is your most spicy amount of peppers? I've already used all my peppers. Take inside of crypto. The majority of dollars invested into crypto over the last one to two years have been investments in public goods. It's been investments in laying telecom cables in the ground. And that's because the majority of investors are not trained in saying, what is a public market's outcome? They're technologists. They say, this is possible. We should do it. And that's actually not going to make much money, but it is good for the industry, which is to say the sheer number of ZK solutions, the sheer number of bridges, et cetera, that have been built. Some of them will make money. A lot won't. But at the end of the day, it's building infrastructure that is very critical for the future of crypto. And so I think the lessons there are, A, there's a lot of money that's being used to build interesting products, which is very exciting going forward. But B, there's importance of asking the question again, like, why do people want to own this asset in five to 10 years? Just because you can build it doesn't mean you should build it. And it's, it's a shocking magnitude that's been allocated on the former versus the latter, the latter versus the former. All right. I thought of another pepper. What is your poblano pepperiest take outside of crypto? This one turns quite sci-fi, but I think it's very interesting. I think the brain is the last frontier. Like We will see a brain hype cycle at some point in the next one to two decades. And by that, I mean, I think in our lifetime, we see a scientific theory unifying consciousness with neuroscience with physics. And I'm an angel investor in a couple of companies doing things in this category. It's interesting. You can actually study the brain right now and you can understand what are the waves that exist when you feel a state that's happy, when you feel a state that's angry, or when you're hyper present, or maybe when you're in a yana state, when you're meditating for a long time. So you can understand what that looks like. You also can actually push the brain into certain states. And so you can program those states effectively. So my, my, my hottest take is like, that will be a hype cycle. But also what's going to happen is we're going to have this experience of being able to program the brain to do things over time. And not to plug Urban again, that's something I absolutely am not doing unless I own my hardware, unless I own my stuff. But all in, I, I think that's where we're going. And, and it's something that almost no one is spending time on. Are you referring to like, skill acquisition being programmable is it mood that can be adjusted is it extracting thoughts and memories which of those falls into the category of down the pipeline not pure sci-fi all the above the order is an interesting question things i feel fairly confident on are the ability to program a state, which is to say, like, how do I maintain a conscious state? How do I go into a lucid dreaming state, for instance? I'm an angel investor in a company that is actually creating devices that will program your brain into a state of lucid dreaming. And the technology exists today to do something like that. So that's an example. 
you can use brainwave technology, not necessarily to ingest new information, but you can actually already use it to improve the neuroplasticity of your brain, to put it in a state where you can absorb a lot of information. And I'm sure with time, you can do it to recall memories as well. So it's, it's, it's probably the technology outside of crypto that I'm most excited about. And also the one that, again, almost no one talks about. That is exciting. I love it. Reminds me of countless movies that I love. Limitless, The Matrix. Inception. So I'm excited to Inception to, to go down that rabbit hole. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Some awesome differentiated opinions, takes, and a lot of food for thought for myself and hopefully the senior studio audience to dig into. This space is so vast, and I always say crypto is not really an asset class. It's a wrapper that contains many different industries and verticals and innovation within it. And so there's a never-ending sub-rabbit hole to go down. And I think after this podcast, I definitely plan on tinkering around Urbit. So thank you for coming on. Where can people follow along, learn more about you and Portal? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Evan B. Fish, and our website is portal.vc. We often push content to that website, both on VCs we're excited about and also ways of understanding different assets, underwriting assets, for instance, thinking about, again, what is a protocol as a business. So definitely recommend both. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on. And for everyone, we will catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Senior's Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.